0: Concerning um, the anointing. The title of the message is this, the, the sweet anointing, and metaphorically in a story that I've read many times in the Old Testament, I saw some things that I want to talk about. But in introduction, Psalm 34:8 says, "Taste and see if the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him." I like the second part as much as the first part. That we know that when we come into the presence of the Lord, we come where the Holy Spirit is gathering with us. And just this morning I was talking about the, the Holy Spirit, the promise, and the function of the Spirit with the Chinese congregation. And he came, he was so heavy, it was, it was hard to breathe, so real, but so gentle. And we noticed something interesting in that morning meeting, the Holy Spirit acts differently than he does here with you guys. And I realized that, it's true, it's, it's, there's a different kind of a move and a flow it gives us a, a look into the, the tender sensitivity of the Holy Spirit toward cultures and people and their hearts. I mean, I like a powerful anointing. I like what I call the chainsaw anointing. I don't God to hit me hard. And I've always pressed in before that. But with the, with the morning group, it's funny, the Lord, He never lets me um, minister that. <laughs> he's, he's always like, just... You know, whereas at night he's like scream at him, you know, yell, tell him, tell him. But it was so it's it, it's not a measure. Let me put it this way: the activity of the Holy Spirit is not a measure of the quantity of the Spirit in the room, nor the quality. But it's exactly what He wants to do in that moment. And it's just so it was so gentle, and so simple. It was uh, you know like a like a Catherine Coleman meeting person of the spirit just comes so vibrantly and powerfully and you just weep and so we had a good time together and you can taste and see that the lord is good into his presence you receive from him and that refuge blessed is the man who takes refuge in him lord jehovah is this name and how can we take refuge in him well we go into his freedom it was for freedom that he set us free And there's a lot of bondage and a lot of things that try to stop us, but God made provision for His people to be blessed with His true presence at all times. And He wants to equip and empower us with His marvelous anointing, with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, religious principles, that is man-made doctrines, rules that man make up, they stand as an obstacle in obtaining and maintaining the relationship with God's Spirit. That's why you will find groups where they will tend to lean more toward their own understanding, where the Bible says, lean not on their own understanding. And sometimes when that happens, we can get off into certain bondage. And That whole principle is an age-old principle. Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious world and the prophets, all of the prophets were sent into the same environments where man took over and basically told God to stand in a corner, and the prophets would go to say, you can't tell God to just stand in the corner, he's angry, he's miffed at you because you've done this, and that really is kind of all of the prophets, all of their, their um, scrolls of the prophets, or the writings of the prophets, were God saying, hey, why are you doing this to me? I want to be with you, I want to love you, I want you to live by my principles, and we see that, but man somehow rises and does other things. Now, I'm going to read quite a bit of passage here out of 1 Samuel chapter 14, and then I'm going to break down some things for you concerning this analogy that I saw in this passage. So there in 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, uh, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. We know this is King Saul, his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. And he was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, and Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priests in Shiloh. And no one was aware that Jonathan had left. So here we see Jonathan doing something different than everyone else is doing. And Jonathan is separating himself from a group. Now, we knew that Saul already was operating in a realm of his own. And in fact, the Lord took his spirit away from him, and an evil spirit came upon him. Because he would not bend and mold or comply to the purposes of God. Instead, he lived by his own purposes, not unless he was a king. Which means that within biblical parameters or kingdom parameters, you can have people operating and living and establishing some type of structure that isn't necessarily what God wants. And when you do that, however, it always is gonna cause the same things to happen. You're gonna cause tangents or divergences of individual hearts, that they feel the need to, to go somewhere and experience and do something out from under the bondage or the covering. And I see this, the analogy of this, as Jonathan is going out by himself, because they're kind of stalemated at this point in the war, and Saul and the 600 men are basically a garrison that is surrounding him to protect him, and he's kind of hiding out, but Jonathan's tired of doing that. Jonathan wants to do something, so he takes his armor bearer with him uh, and says, come on, let's go over to the outpost of the uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. We're going on now, verse 4. I skipped ahead a little bit to 6, but... On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozez, and the other Sene. Uh, I won't get into what that means, but it is significant. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And it's interesting that he's looking for God to do something on his behalf. He's not saying perhaps we can do something great for God. He's saying it in the right way, that maybe God will do something. If we put ourselves in a certain position, make ourselves available, yielding to God in this war we see, but I see that in life as we yield to the Spirit of the Lord, perhaps God will do something great through us. And I know that is his desire at all times to do something great for us to act on our behalf. He says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, you heart and soul. So there they, they had unity, two of them separate from all the others. They're going off to experience and to trust God to work through them and for them. Now Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now that wasn't an entirely unorthodox method of discerning the will of the Lord. It was not so far off of the plus or the positive or negative return of the Urim and Thummim or the casting of lots. And often you see that in the Old Testament. By the way, don't do that. We're not in the Old Testament. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit now. Uh, don't let your Bible fall open. and stick, Oh, that's the Word of the Lord for me. You can do that, and I've done it, but um, it's it's pretty scary when you do I heard one guy that said that he, he just wanted the Word from the Lord. He let the Bible fall open, fall open, and he did that, and it, it, his finger... Uh, landed on the passage that was condemning Judas as the son of perdition. And he quickly flipped the pages and hit it again, and it landed on the words that said, um, that that you're going to do, do quickly. (laughs) So like two Judas references over a few pages, he said, he pulled his hand back and freaked out. That's almost like a Ouija board, like turning your Bible into a Ouija board. So if you do that, it's okay. But... Don't take that as the absolute word of the Lord, but in that day they didn't have the resources. Now let me let me shorten that to resource. If I'm not diminishing the value of my precious Holy Spirit, that the Lord that is with us, but He is the greatest resource we have. So why not avail ourselves of Him? And that's the freedom of living in the Spirit. Is walking in the Spirit, living by the Spirit. This morning when I was teaching about the Holy Spirit, I remembered, wow. The Holy Spirit is, is my greatest teacher ever. He's taught me so many things, explained thousands of things in detail to me. And he's intimate and personal in that regard. And that's exactly what Jesus said he would do. The Part of the promise was that the Spirit will teach you all the things that I've ever taught you. He will bring to your remembrance. And so he's working. But here we go back to the story. So both of them did this. They take a chance. They show themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes where where they were hiding. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson, which was the very sign he was looking for. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, this is an entire uh, military group, like an army. This is just Jonathan and his armor-bearer. So he's got a guy carrying his armor... And he himself, and they're going to go up there and do this. So Jonathan climbed up with great faith, by the way, and great um, valor. I mean, this takes a lot of guts, or he is just (laughs) clinically insane, one or the other. But he truly believed that God could do it. And when you walk according to the things the Lord wants, when you step out in the freedoms of God, you have this tendency to believe in the impossible. And the, the ones that believe in the impossible, those things turn into truth and in reality. You become David with Goliath. You become people doing amazing things because you trusted God in spirit. Instead of hiding in the rocks for which they're being mocked by the enemy because that's what Saul and the others were doing. They were, they were hiding and they, they, because the whole mechanism of the reign of Saul was corrupted and controlled by him as an individual and not by God. God left them to themselves, really. So they go here, it says, um, come up to us uh, and we'll teach you less. So Jonathan said to his armor, look, the Lord has given them to us. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistine, and by the way, guys, if you've ever been rock climbing, uh, that's what this means. These, these guys are scaling mountains. I mean, they're, they're pretty amazing. So he's rock climbing up with his armor bearer and the armor up to the enemy because that's nuts. And he's and they're up there, the enemy's up there saying, Come up here, we'll teach you a lesson. He's like, Alright, you want some of this? And he's climbing up this mountain face, going up with trust that the Lord can do anything. Ultimately I like, I see what David saw. You know, David loved this guy. And David and Jonathan are one of the closest relationships in the Bible, you see. He loved him like his own soul, it says. He loved him beyond the love that you would have for a a mate or like a a wife or a husband. They they were bound together in covenant. And David admired him and wanted to be a part of him. So as they go up there, uh, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. Uh, Followed and killed behind. In other words, as soon as he made to the top of that hill, he started doing something with his sword and his spear, and they just started falling one after another, like a superhero movie. And if anybody happened to get away, the armor bearer got that one. And so they're going through the camp. Now, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp Enfield and, and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. I mean, you know, God can send a panic on your enemy. He can't. Uh, God will send a panic that comes through anyone willing to yield to God in such circumstances and trust Him entirely. So this panic comes from God. The earth shakes. They're afraid. They're fleeing because these two men are slaughtering them. Now. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. So when they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. They took roll and saw that, wait, Jonathan and the armor bearer are not here. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the Ark of God. At that time, it was uh, with the Israelites. And this is amazing. He actually had the Ark of the Covenant without the anointing. You understand? It was the presence of the Lord in the sense of the the object upon which the mercy seat was where His presence would come. But God was not working on His behalf. Because even if you have or have had the Ark of the Covenant, once you step out into your own, you don't do the will of the Father, He's not working for you. So it's important to understand that. He had the Ark, so He sent for it. He's trying to manipulate it to work for Him. Uh, Use it like a weapon of some kind. Use its power, like a big ray gun or, or some EMP pulse against digital equipment. I don't know. He just has this... He wants to use all of his assets as his understanding is. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. So these guys were in such confusion that they started fighting each other. Why? I don't know. Did the Lord uh, give them visions of each other as if they were Israelites or anything could have happened? He's done such things in the Word of God. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the battle moved on beyond beth So all because of what? Because of one freelance guy that broke away from the pack and decided to put God to the test, not tempt him, but test and see taste and see that the Lord is good, that there's nothing that the Lord can't do. And this happens, I've seen it through the years, I know I've know i seen it in my own churches, I've seen people go and do things and try things, and it's good that we have an individualistic mentality, also that we are one as a body, but God likes people who take initiatives like this and do amazing things. They do maybe their own group or their own, you can do, if you if any of you came to me and said, Stephen, uh, I planted a church behind your back. That wouldn't be the happiest day of my life. I wouldn't be like, you what? (laughs) No, I I would be so excited if you did anything that furthers the kingdom. And now, why? Because I'm not controlling anybody. I don't have strings tied to anyone. I'm not manipulating anyone. You can do whatever you want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm free. I want you to be like Jonathan. That's why we're looking at him and the way that he's done this. However, there's a problem sometimes and we're going to examine... Uh, This provision that God has given to them in relation to the laws of man and how they contradicted one another. And there's four things actually of importance in this analogy. Sweet anointing, four things of importance. Um, First, honey, when we talk about this, uh, honey is our focus because honey is like the anointing. But we start with number one, the enemy of the anointing. Now, the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath. Now, this is. At the same time, they've had this great victory, but they were in the absence, in the time that took Jonathan and his armor bearer to sneak away. Saul, operating in his solemnness, suddenly bound the people under an oath. In other words, a religious promise. Told them that this is the way we're going to operate. Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Now, this is, this is kind of like a fast. You can look at this from a religious perspective. Whatever the case is, he bound the men. Seems like a good idea to this promise that they would all fast. But you have to remember that they're at war. So this, this under oath, the control of a religious law, is going to cause a lot of big problems as it goes on. And so they were in distress because Saul bound them. By this, And that's what religious laws do. They seek to nullify the plan of God. They often do. And we need to be careful not to get under the bondage of laws. Jesus had to continually grapple with the religious laws of the Jews, the traditions of men, not the law of God. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. He did. And his arguments were never with the law. The law is perfect. He said that heaven, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for even one part of that law to disappear. His contention was with the the rules that the Pharisees and the, and the men had made up surrounding them. We know that to be true because that's the face of organized religious understanding. In fact, he referred to that bondage in such a way that said you take these rules and you go find in other countries, you'll find people in proselytes and you will convert them and you'll put all these heavy burdens on them and all this bondage, but you won't lift a finger to help them. In other words, it's just put the system, put them under the system and make it live it, this system, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with fasting, you understand. There's nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with a lot of the things that religion will use, but it's who directed that, who said. The Lord says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? And, I mean, I fast. When I fast, it's when the Lord says, Stephen, I want you to fast, and I will fast. Uh, You won't see me uh, hardly ever, call a fast. I don't think I've ever called a fast. You see that happen. This is basically what he's doing. He's calling a fast. Uh, and there's a lot about fasting that people don't understand. And another time I'll teach her that we're not really talking about fasting. Right now we're looking at this problem. So, now we go on. Uh, number two, the abundance of God's anointing and provision, which is astounding. In the story, the entire army uh, entered the woods and there was honey honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. And this caught my attention when I looked at it because I started thinking about how much the Lord provides and, and the honey, the sweetness of God. Honey is an amazing substance, first of all, the, the nutritional value of it alone, what it can do. And uh, we see it throughout the word of God, this, the 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 land flowing with milk and honey was part of the promised land 21 times in the Bible. It's called the land flowing with milk and honey, which always seemed a bit messy to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, land flowing with milk and honey. But we get the point is, there's such an abundance of these resources and these blessings. That's like the anointing. There is no limit to what is provided for us from heaven. The eternal treasures of God the honey of heaven, the anointing, the sweetness of God. But when laws are enacted by man, it can restrict our access to the things that God had intended. It's pretty obvious that that this honey was there by the work of God to feed that army. And it was strategically placed there and oozing out so that in this time of war they would be... They would receive nutrition and grow strong and be able to do what God had called them to do. That's God's plan. God has a lot of plans. But the only thing that can stop that is one man's decision to bind people under an oath. But God has provided it. God gave it. God has poured His Spirit out in the church today. God has poured His anointing out on the body of Christ. The gifts are available to anybody who wants them. But I have personally witnessed men bind the people and prohibit them from receiving what God is pouring out. Uh, sometimes they mislabel the anointing. Sometimes they call it something else. Whatever the case, but often the rules, regulations, and these things can stop people from taking advantage of the abundance of God's anointing and His provision for their lives. Exodus 16:13 says the people of Israel called the bread manna it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. So we know that that honey is a taste that God intended. His perfect food substance that he made in manna tasted like honey. So if God's imitating anything on earth uh, to taste like a thing, it's like you know most of the time we say that anything we eat that we don't understand it tastes like chicken. <laughs> you, know, you don't know what it is, what is it? it kind of tastes like chicken. It's either, it either tastes like chicken, or um, it tastes like fish, or something like a seafood. But in this case, it's honey. Honey is like the magic taste of heaven. If you could taste food from heaven, it tastes like honey. That's what I'm just reading what the Bible says. So a, a lamb filling with milk and honey. We see these honey references throughout the Word of God. Uh, 67 times the word honey appears. Uh, sometimes it's in mixed uses, but God intended on giving us honey because he fills our mouth with good things, and he certainly gives us the Spirit of the Lord. If we know how to give gifts to our children, feed them good things, how much more? He gives us the anointing. gives us the Holy Spirit. Now I want us to look at the effect of the anointing, and these are three things about the effect of the anointing embedded in this story that we're looking at. So we continue in verse 27 of 1 Samuel 14. Now you get the picture, these are the whole army, they see honey, they can't touch it. But, Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the... I like it literally says, bound them. The bondage is, it's not encrypted, it's written. He bound them with this oath. Now, Jonathan didn't know about it. Why? Because Jonathan was out there doing the wonders of God. Jonathan was out there just exploring and living and having fun in the freedom of what God called him to do as a warrior, and he, you know, they they started to, uh, they turned the whole tide of the war single-handedly or them together, him and his armor bearer. So he didn't hear what had been said. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb, and he raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. It's interesting, it says literally that when he tasted the honey, his eyes brightened. Because, understand, he just, I mean, sure, the Lord was with him in using him to fight the enemy. But how many of you know he got hungry doing that? If you, you know, put any one of you in half an acre and you kill 25 guys, after that, you're probably going to have an appetite. And like all the other army, they also have an appetite. They're starving, they're fighting, they're working, and God's trying to feed them. And of course, Jonathan sees it and has no problem at all taking God's provision. He sticks his staff into the honeycomb and then scoops honey out, and he's eating it, and his eyes are brightened. And really, I see this as the first thing that the anointing does. We are enlightened by the anointing. We are enlightened. In other words, our eyes are open, we see things we've never seen before. Uh, My experience in 1995, the Holy Spirit caused my eyes to be opened to things I never knew were possible. It really was an enlightenment. It was a sanctification that changed the way I see. And many years ago, in revivals, a hundred years ago, or or in, in those times, they had that level of an experience. They actually taught and regularly referenced as the sanctification. In other words, you had salvation, water baptism, and you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then you had the sanctification. And you wonder, whoa, whoa, whoa what is the what? And, and the, I can't I can show you the biblical passages that support the idea of a sanctification. It has more to do with when you really cross the line of the servanthood and become a doulos slave and you bow your life down. It's the laying down of your life. But it has to do with intimacy with God. That, that once you've been enlightened, Hebrews 6 says. Uh, all the things He gives you that you taste of the things of the world to come, be partakers of the Holy Spirit. Not just an observer of the Holy Spirit, but a partaker. You partake in the Holy Spirit. The good Word of God, it says. You taste, taste of the things of the world to come. You get a taste of it and experience it and live it. And that is an enlightenment. And it's like God's provision is offered to you. You reach out and you take it. When the anointing comes into a room and the presence of God is with us, it's like that honey. It literally just oozes out. But I've seen people come in and not dare touch it because they were bound by an oath. Many times. I've seen people in the presence of God, arms folded, looking around at the people to the left and the right of them who are pigging out on honey. I mean, they got honey all over their face, their hands are sticky, and if you've ever been sticky with honey, it's really a sticky stickiness. It gets all over everything. Skin sticking in your clothes. and We are drenched in the honey very often in the meetings, but you'll see people that if they are indeed bound under an oath, they, they can't reach out. Not easily. They need to be reprogrammed and helped to be able to, to take up the Lord's provision. Now I've seen people come in to this ministry many times who specifically ran away from their ministries because Saul had put them under an oath and them.
1: And they know, hey, there's honey
0: over there. So they come in breaking them. They come in, they like renegades, rebels, and we have, some of them are showing up. Because remember, and who was here that night? We had a prayer meeting, and I specifically prayed for those people to come. And as a result, several of them are coming. And they're they're great people. They're, they're not here tonight. They had some other things to do, but you met some of them, uh, some of the guys that are here, and I've been spending time with them. Uh, just the other day, a couple of those guys ended up at Soul Kitchen, and uh, the chef that is next door to us, he was a little lightheaded, and he slipped and fell earlier in the day and sprained his ankle. And, of course, this uh, the the lady that comes to the and she saw him immediately, and says, I need to pray for you. I need to. Pray. The guy's not even saved, you know. But I, and I have been witnessing little by little, like starting and starting. He knows I've, I've shared Jesus with him, but she was like unabashedly, like all over him, laying hands on him, would not let go of him enough to make me uncomfortable. <laughs> now you know how extreme that has to be if I'm uncomfortable. But she. That one lady that's doing this, I, of course I left it alone and I, I agreed and, set, and said prayer is powerful. I told him we will pray, God will do By the way, the next day he was feeling much better. He thanked us for the prayer. But the point is she, she had no limits because she was so full of honey from coming. And she said, and I quote her as saying, I have been to church more times in the last two weeks than I have in the last year. Like cause she to service after service after service where she was receiving and then brought friends and brought uh, her husband and they receive and we've had great conversations about the Spirit of the Lord and the anointing. But now it's, it's coming out of her. She, she was putting honey on that chef's head. Like she was like sticking on him. And you can see he was receiving and being sensitive to that. A little uncomfortable, but, but, but opening and kind. See, so I pray that people like that come. I pray that people that are hungry for the honey can come and eat it. Because it's not fair. How many of you see that these warriors, not Jonathan and his, his armor bearer, but all these other guys, it's not fair that they're not allowed to take what God was providing for them. And because it brings an enlightenment. It opens our eyes. Next one in verse 28. The one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath. Now it's a strict oath. Saying, curse it. Now they're getting cursed. Be any man who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Now, because they would not be faint, we're empowered by the anointing. Jonathan, he's not, he's not faint. Jonathan's will of honey. But they're not, they're looking at Jonathan, and Jonathan's like, What's up, guys? You know, he's got a rush, a honey rush of sugar, ready to go kill more Philistines. And they're like dragging, and it's like they've not had their morning coffee, and they're not empowered. But because the anointing is supposed to, like that honey, it's supposed to empower us, and the men were faint because they lacked what God had provided for them. And I see the body of Christ suffering like that all the time. I see people in the church, there's more for them than they are partaking in. The next one, we are educated, verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brighten when I tasted a little of this honey? Yeah, because it doesn't take a lot of honey. Even a little bit is enough to cause your eyes to brighten. He's telling them, can't you see the effect of the honey on me? Can't you see that my eyes... He's witnessing on behalf of the honey to tell them how good it is, just tasting a little bit, how much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Now, Jonathan's gone beyond just the honey and saying, You've got all this plunder and all these animals. Imagine if you had not been fasting. And while he was, because he made that decision in Jonathan's absence without God's presence. And he did what he did, put that law on people. But Jonathan is seeing the error of it. He made trouble, he said. That's really what these kind of bondage and rules do. It makes trouble for us. See the effect of the anointing. He says, See what the honey has done to me. And I like to see the way it affects people, just like I was mentioning our friend praying for the chef and that outgoing flow, excitement in the Lord. It's, it's, it's fun to see. How much better could it be if God's people were not in bondage? How much more would be accomplished if you got everyone filled with the Holy Spirit, everyone freely eating the honey, scooping it up? And that's really what God's <laughs> provision is for us. Now I want to talk a little bit about the absence of the anointing because the story goes on, and look what happens now. Jonathan's good. Jonathan's full of the the honey. Let's say he's anointed. But now we see the story continue in the absence of the anointing. Seven results from the absence of the anointing. And I saw these things in the passage that made me really think. We began, first of all, we become exhausted. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. Why? Because they were fighting in their strength and they used up the calories and they weren't able to eat because they're under these restrictions that were put on them and they're exhausted. I find that anything I do without the Spirit of the Lord is exhausting. Really exhausting. Simple things. Uh, if someone ever pushes me into some spiritual activity that God hasn't called me to do, I've done it through the years because I love people and I'm nice. But if I've ever been shoved into it and God's Spirit is not there, it's, it's so stressful to me. It's exhausting to have to do anything religious without the Spirit of the Lord moving and operating. And this is what happens. There are people out there who have just decided to come up with their own agenda and that's why they get burnt out. That's why a lot of people quit the ministry. Because they're trying to do things in their own strength. They're trying to do things and they get exhausted, they get tired, and they grow weary. And they don't want to continue because of it. And that is a result of the absence of the anointing. We sin, number two. It says, as the verse continues, they pounced on the plunder. That has a nice sound to it. Pounced on the plunder. They pounced on the plunder. And taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the What? Yeah, this is a mess. Why? Because they're starving and now the, the end of the day has come, they come to the end, and they're forced, because of this starvation, to do something that was not lawful. They're not supposed to, they're supposed to drain the blood from the animals, bleed them out. And someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. And this is what happens also without the anointing. It becomes a lot easier to just do things in a way that God never intended because you're not under His control and you just pounce on the plunder and you eat it or you do things, you do meetings, you do religious activities, you do things that God did not author. Remember, He's the author and the finisher of our faith. If He has not authored it, then He's not going to finish it. It might be just your idea and then many are the thoughts of men but only the counsel of the Lord endures. You know, there are many ways this things that seem right to a man, but the end of it is destruction, it says. A lot of verses that talk about us listening to our mind. Last week, the Lord was speaking to me about discernment and the the danger of human discernment. Be very careful not to let your mind tell you things. Don't trust your own heart. Oh, no, we need to trust our heart. No, you don't need to trust your heart. You need the Spirit of the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Uh, Another thing, number three, we do our own will, Uh, it says you have broken faith he said roll a large stone over here at once then he said go out among the men and tell them each of you bring your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it so everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there then Saul built an altar to the Lord it was the first time that he had done this Saul said, "Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive." Do whatever seems best to you," they replied. Well, he was already doing whatever he wanted to do. They had no choice. They whatever what was best was a, a bondage of an oath that they took, not to be. That's why they're in this circumstance now. He's trying to make it right, but the fact is, he's operating in his own own ideas and they're just following along because if somebody's in charge, they we have a tendency to follow the person in charge. But it's it's there's going to be a void created as a result. When the, the anointing's not there, people are going to feel an emptiness and that's number four, we hunger for God. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. Yeah, They wanted to check in on the Lord and ask what God wants and uh, Saul was doing what he wants, but the priest said, let us inquire of God. We are, because they were hungry. The priests were left with a desire for real interaction with God because they were unsatisfied by the will of man. And this is a common problem in environments where God is not allowed to flow and the anointing is stifled. Number five, God stops speaking. And remember, these are things in the absence of the anointing. So Saul asked God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him then. So God's just not even talking to him. So why wouldn't God speak to him? Well, because of all the aforementioned things that he's doing, he's not following the Lord. And in the absence of the manifest presence of God, the anointing, actively doing what it should, well, God's not going to talk. God only speaks when his spirit comes. In fact, he only speaks when he touches you and sanctifies you, and you're in his presence, then he will talk to you. And he's not talking to Saul, because Saul's... Flowing in something in the absence of the anointed. Number six, we go on a witch hunt. So, Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today." And Now, as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Well, that's just a stupid thing to even say. <laughs> he, he, it's like he already knew. Because remember, he had an evil spirit on him that was already active in his life. It's very possible that this evil spirit was just giving him the idea, yeah, you should make this this another stupid uh, law on top of that last stupid law. Let's make some more dumb things. uh, Just even if it's your son Jonathan. So he throws that in there, uh, not knowing that, in fact, his son Jonathan is the one he's going to find culpable or guilty of this sin. So even if it's my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said a word. And I see the men know. They know exactly what Jonathan has done. Yeah. And so he's like, let's find the one who's guilty of the sin and breaking the oath. And that's why we have all these problems. Certainly not because I'm an egomaniac doing what I want to do. But So we have to find the individual and take him down. Even if it's my son Jonathan, I can see the guy's like, even mm-hmm. they're not, not going to say anything. Why? Because they know in their heart of hearts it's all wrong. The whole system's not working. It's not right. And that's what we feel like when we end up under the bondage of religion. Yeah. We're disgruntled. We're unhappy. And we feel like there's injustices. It's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. It's not the way it should be. Yeah. And so they're just keeping their their mouths shut. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you. The men replied, that's their best response. They're repeating it. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want, man. Whatever you want. Whatever. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot. Now, this was the Lot, Urm and Thumm, again, process of elimination. They figured out, and it did come down to Jonathan, and God, of course, is allowing all this to happen because he's trying to expose something. And this is a very belabored story for us to read. So obviously there are some principles that God wanted us to see, which one perspective is what I'm offering you here tonight. So he says, that do what seems best to you. The men said "And he prayed to the Lord God of Israel, give me the right answer. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and me. And Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Now, of course, this is truth because he is the one that did break the oath. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now must I die? Because he can't believe how stupid this is. (laughs) Like, he knows he's the guy that scaled the mountain and turned the whole tide of the war. It just doesn't make sense that the religious law will take priority above the reality of God. And that's where laws don't work in that respect. Because as long as there's absolutes, there's no justice. And we know that in our own, any law, in any country, if any law is absolute, it inevitably is going to serve some injustice to somebody. Because it's just going to, the deck will be stacked against them in a certain circumstance... And, but their situation really doesn't merit that they, that they pay a certain penalty, so it's, it's mitigating circumstances, many things, and even Jonathan at this point thinks this is ridiculous, the men are keeping their mouths shut because they're just the men. So you have this big mess of injustice within this system, and now he is of course a maniac, Saul is, Said Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. He tells him, Saul said, May God deal with me be it ever so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. Now, see, now they're speaking up. Because Saul is actually going to kill him. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground for he did this today with God's help. Now, this is inevitably what will happen in the absence of the anointing. The people will rise up in revolt. If there is someone in a position of authority that is not operating in the Spirit, not leading and using their own principles and their own ideas, well, these people are going to walk away from that. And that's understandable. And in this case, the injustice is so extreme that the men, the people there, they're not looking to, to get rid of Saul... They're submitted to Saul. They're, they're subject to him. They just they don't want this injustice to take place because it just doesn't work and it doesn't make sense. They say never. As sure as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. They saw that he had God on his side. They saw the anointing, if you would, the Spirit of the Lord operating through Jonathan, and it was an undeniable. Because this is one thing about God's people, be it Old Testament or New Testament, God's people will know Him. You will not need anyone to tell you who He is. It says in the prophecy that every man will know God. Uh, In the New Testament, we know we have an anointing from the Holy. We don't need a man to teach us. In any group, ultimately, you're going to be able to know the difference and know that God is powerful. You will see God work through circumstances and through things, and and you'll know it. But. When it's just religious rules, I mean, I'm telling you because I know from experience, I have been under a number of times in my ministry. I've been in churches in religious organizations that were so dry that were so devoid almost entirely of the anointing. In fact, if there ever was an anointing, anything would manifest. You would hear about it like some distant thing that happened in another country. Somebody would talk about the Spirit. I found this to be true about this problem with the lack of the anointed in the body of Christ when people call me anointed. I've had, like, even in ministry circles, oh, well, you can get Stephen to come to this conference because he's anointed. Well, why aren't you? (laughs) Why isn't everyone anointed, is my question. If we all have the ability to be anointed, then that means we need to find a way to stop doing our own will and our own purposes. Get anointed become the one with the reputation. I want us all to have the reputation as God's anointed people. I want people to look at us and say that what we do, we did today with God's help. God did that. It would be obvious to the people around that there. Jonathan, there's no way Jonathan could have done that. He did something supernatural. God has used him. And, you know, number seven, in the lack of the anointed, we have to rescue people from destruction. So the man rescued Jonathan. And he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. Now, of course, Saul had no choice. Saul is now basically in a mutiny because he made a, he made a declaration as king and said he will die. Surely, as, as the Lord lives, on oath, Jonathan, you're going to die. And the people did not let it happen. And so he just quit and they withdrew and they went to their own land. The men had to rescue Jonathan. And this will happen. I've been rescued quite a few times from circumstances where religious environments have tried to consume me and throw me away uh, because of problems, because of laws, because of absolutes. And my ministry almost ended a couple of times because men in positions of authority arbitrarily made choices and didn't really seek the Lord about a thing. They just made a democratic environment over a director's board and a missions agency and decided that I should be nullified as a missionary. They didn't know the whole circumstance. But I had people in the camp that knew me and saw me and followed me and loved me and knew that God was with me. And I had done many things that those people who were making the decision had not seen. And they were the ones that rose up on my behalf and protected me and rescued me from the religious environment that was going to destroy me. And I will always, I like to be the one rescuing. I have taken missionaries into our ministry in years past who were thrown out of other ministries. In fact, when somebody tells me they were thrown out of a church or thrown out of a ministry, they intrigue me. That's interesting. I want to know why. There may be good reasons why they were thrown out. Uh, maybe, you know, whatever the case, but I like to hear. And it's interesting also to note that um, most major ministries today that are in operation that are anointed and doing great things, their story is the same. They were part of a group with a Saul and they had to separate. And they didn't want to because they, they had loyalties to Saul and to the kingdom. But it turned out that God is doing things that aren't necessarily under that kingdom's authority or that part. In other words, the kingdom is of a man, as was Saul's. If the honey's there, we're going to eat the honey. We're, if the Lord's providing it, we need to do that and not live in an atmosphere without the anointing. So we're going to have to rescue people from destruction. And I said again, of those people that are coming into the services to receive... I pray, any, I pray that God would send us all of the dissidents of the body of Christ. I pray that he would send us every broken brokenhearted, everyone who's had their sword broken and thrown out of the fort. You know, the ones that have been bound by a religious system. I say, bring them. You say, well, they might be problematic people. There may be a good reason why they're thrown out of those systems. Maybe, maybe not. I'm willing to take that chance. The worst case is I'll throw them out too. <laughs> but in the meantime, they have an opportunity to eat some honey, and be free, and grow. And I think that revivals can be built on the back of such principles. Whole movements of God can happen if you can provide a place where God's people can eat the honey and come and take it freely without any restrictions, without anything holding them back. if they get enough honey, there's no no telling what they'll be able to do for the Lord. Amen? So this is this picture that I saw, the sweet anointing. We saw the enemy of the anointing. Uh, The abundance of God's anointing and provision. We know that's a fact. Always moving, always flowing. (laughs) Number three, the effect of the anointing. That we are enlightened, empowered, and educated. We learn when we eat the honey. Our eyes are open. We receive strength that we didn't have before. Whereas, in contrast, the absence of the anointing. We become exhausted. We sin. We do our own will. We hunger for God. Which at least will be able to draw us away from the absence to where we can find the honey again. God stops speaking. Uh, we go on a witch hunt. Yeah, we start. Religious um, organizations have always done that. They like to, they like to take somebody down. It's like they want to find the bad person and punish them. And we have to rescue people from destruction. I think that is our job. I think it's everybody's job. So if you know anybody who goes to a church and they're sick and tired and they're in this situation, then tell them to come here and eat some honey. They'll be happy to eat all they want. They don't have to put their name on a membership roll. They don't have to wear an Antioch t-shirt. They can come and go as they please. I just want to create a place where the Fountain of Living Water is richly providing for everybody because He does bless us and as was our worship a moment ago. So sweet, so powerful. He's a loving and a wonderful God. Amen.